Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, where we try to apply the truth of Christ crucified that we find in Scripture to life and ministry and everything. And in today's episode, we're particularly going to be thinking again about the truth of Christ crucified and what it means for ministry and for our service of other people. I'm going to pick up on some thoughts I had a few weeks ago, before I went on holidays, where in a sort of post-viral haze, I posted a few thoughts about the mysterious nature of Christian ministry. That is the counterintuitive way that God, in his wisdom, deliberately uses the cross. That is the, the preaching of the apparently weak and foolish message of the cross, preached by apparently weak and foolish people in order to save his people in such a way that the credit all belongs to the Lord. We talked about that question a few weeks ago, and in particular, how it fits with the concept of planning and wisdom and cause and effect in ministry. Because faithfulness requires a certain level of planning and wisdom and cause and effect in ministry. We, we look at what's happening in church life and in ministry, and if something isn't working, as we say, we usually trying to change it up in some sort of way, trying to improve things. That's hardly a controversial thing to do. In fact, it's hardly an avoidable thing to do if we're going to be good stewards of what God has given us. But how does that responsibility, the responsibility to observe what's happening, to see what's causing other things, to kind of figure stuff out, to manage things, to improve things, how does all that kind of thing fit with the spiritually mysterious nature of ministry, the ministry of the cross. And I asked you while I was away on holidays if you would, wouldn't mind solving that problem for me and having an answer on my desk for when I got back. Now, I wasn't exactly inundated with responses, which might mean that you're every bit as stumped about this as kind of I was in my post, or that you're not very interested in the question, or, or possibly both, I guess. John Lavender wrote in with some very helpful thoughts, and I'll come to those in just a moment. But I thought that in today's post, it would be wrong of me not to follow up on that question and not to try and have one more bite at it and say something slightly more helpful about it before moving on to other topics. So, one more bite at this question by posing it in its possibly sharpest form, after which we'll move on to other things. And the sharp form of this question is as follows. Is it right to plan for conversions? So, take this statement. Under God, we'd love to plan and pray and work hard towards seeing 40 people become Christians over the next 12 months. There's a statement of a goal. Now, does that sort of statement of a goal make you a tad uneasy? Well, it certainly sparked off a lively debate in our particular strategy group, the strategy working group that I'm part of at Campus Bible Study, uh, just earlier this year. We were preparing a set of draft goals or desired outcomes, as we were calling them, for the ministry over the next few years. We're doing the strategic thing. And we talked about setting some goals in various areas, goals for maturing the Christians that we were ministering to, or goals for growing the number of trainees involved in the ministry traineeship, uh, goals for getting the gospel out and seeing more people hear the gospel on campus, and so on and so forth. But interestingly, we found that setting an outreach goal was one thing, that we'd like to present the gospel to X number of people on campus, 
over a period of time. That, that was okay. But setting a conversion goal, that seemed like another thing, or at least it felt that way to various members of our group. Wouldn't setting a conversion goal be kind of expecting the spirit to blow according to our will and plans rather than his own? Then again, as we talked, we did note that we were quite happy to work towards other goals that depended on the spirit's sovereign work. For example, working towards seeing more people give up their worldly ambitions and go into full-time ministry to come into the ministry traineeship. We didn't blanch at having that as an aim and to prayerfully plan and work hard towards it, even though we would acknowledge that God only gives the growth in that area by his spirit as he does in all areas. But somehow planning towards seeing 40 people or 400 people become Christians, that seems different somehow. How would we even know if they had become Christians? And if our evangelistic plans and methods and strategies seem to help us achieve that goal, how would we stop ourselves from boasting, even just a bit, even in our own minds perhaps, boasting in the efficacy of our strategies rather than boasting only in the Lord? It's a particularly sharp form of the question that we're considering. How can we be practical and wise in ministry planning and practice without beginning to boast in the efficacy of our clever methods and systems, without beginning to think that we've cracked the code and can now reliably predict what it takes to get the spirit to blow through people's hearts and minds? Well, I have pondered this a bit further, and I have four thoughts that hopefully at least advance the discussion a little bit. First of all, and this is perhaps slightly a cop-out, I don't think we'll ever completely solve this question any more than we'll ever completely solve all the mysteries of how God's will and human responsibility co-inhere and fit together. These two things, it seems to me, will always be somewhat of a mystery to us. We know that they're both true. In fact, it's another example of holding two apparently contrasting truths together in tension. And I wrote about that a few weeks ago, months ago now, uh, about how there always and very often in Christian doctrine are two things that we hold together simultaneously that are both true. And I think to some extent, this question that we're asking is one of those questions. So that's the first thing to acknowledge. But secondly, we can't ever boast in our methods, it seems to me, because everything that's truly significant or important in our gospel methodology comes to us from outside. It's been given to us by God. And this was one of John Lavender's points in the very thoughtful response that he sent in on this question. John said, and I'll read you just a bit from his, his comment, he says, I think I get what you're saying about God working through our weakness and our stumbling and mumbling, through our imperfection and through unlikely people, that it's not through our slick methods or even our planning and structures that we see people saved, lest in pride we think, look what I've done. Yet having said that, John says, I think we can say that the New Testament does set a macro pattern of ministry for us. So, for example, in Acts 2, where the disciples devote themselves to the word and prayer and fellowship, or in Acts 3, 21 following, where we see the disciples' commitment to prayer and, God, and to boldly speaking the word of God. I'm also thinking of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 33 to 11, 1, where so that many may be saved, he urges his readers to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. I guess what I'm trying to say here, says John, 
is that in the macro, we have the model of doing all we can by following Jesus' example of seeking and saving the lost. This is not our model. It's humbly following Jesus, so we cannot boast. I think it is in the micro, in our local context, where we need to consider what this will look like in our patch. It's here, I think, where we must really pray for wisdom and look to learn from others and from our mistakes and trust that even in our weakness, God would be pleased to use us for their salvation of many. It's a great comment and a great response. And thanks so much for that, John. And I think the implication of what John is saying is that we are responsible to keep following the model that Jesus has given us, to keep following that example, to keep examining ourselves in our practice, to make sure that we're faithful to the main method of ministry that God has given us. And this is, of course, one of Paul's points in 1 Corinthians 1-4, to that his job is to be a faithful slave and a faithful servant of the divine gospel methodology to keep preaching the confounding word of the cross independence on the spirit that's his job that's our job there's a givenness to our methodologies that comes to us from outside that also in this sense of course precludes any boasting as if we've come up with any of this ourselves but a third point and following on from something that john points out there is still a micro level of tinkering that we do to implement that unchanging methodology in our particular patch. This is where goal setting, it seems to me, can be a useful heuristic kind of tool to help us think and plan. You put a target up on the wall and then you put together some micro level plans, some localized particular ways of preaching the gospel prayerfully, and then we see how they go. And when we stop to evaluate how things have been going, we can interrogate these micro-level plans and we can think about how to change them or improve them. And so in that sense, any goal setting, and this is true in any activity, not just in ministry, but any goal setting is not primarily about actually reaching the goal. It's really a tool for coordinating and prioritizing, for collaborating and for evaluating what we've been doing in pursuit of the good thing that the goal kind of represents, almost symbolically represents. And so fourthly and finally, I think we can say that while goal setting is a perfectly good and reasonable thing to do, it's probably just as well that goal setting is not really about reaching the goal because whether we do reach that goal or not is beyond our control. And this is another aspect of the hiddenness or mysteriousness of gospel ministry. It's not only hidden or mysterious in the sense that it relies on a a message and a power that is confounding and that is counterintuitive, the power of the cross. But it's also that we know far less about what is happening in our world and in ministry than we sometimes kid ourselves that we know. If we're thinking about the micro-level work that we're doing, we adjust the settings on some micro-level knobs and we hope and pray and watch to see what happens. But even when our adjustments, our knob twiddling does seem to work, there remains a multitude of unknown and unknowable factors that help to bring about that particular outcome. Or, on the other side, that meant that that particular plan we had didn't work. The number of variables is huge. 
The spirit blows when and where he wishes, and the complex trail of his work in people's lives, it's far beyond our ability to follow and to understand. But if we continue to let the mysterious word of the cross dwell richly among us, shall we say, too, and we continue to depend in prayer on the spirit, it will discipline us to avoid the sin that we've been dancing around, really, for most of this article. And that's the sin of pride. It's pride that's the problem. Pride in the methods or systems that we've come up with. Pride in our success, in reaching our ministry goals, whether that's the goal of conversions or, or otherwise. Pride. Pride in ourselves. Having too high a view of ourselves. And the word of the cross is poisonous to pride. The seemingly weak and foolish cross with its seemingly weak and foolish preachers and its seemingly lowly and insignificant converts. All of this is part of the wise plan of God to shame the wise, to shame the strong and the powerful, to shame the proud. The word of the cross drives us in the opposite direction, to boast in our lowliness and weakness and in the power and wisdom and righteousness of God. Well, did our strategy group end up setting a target for conversions? Well, we just about did, although we're still talking about it. So far, we've decided that it would be very helpful to see how many people across the ministry would self-identify as having become Christians over the past 12 months. That'd be a wonderful thing to know. And setting a goal under God of seeing that number get bigger next year would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? And so if that's setting a, a target for how many people we'd like to see become Christians and thinking and praying and working towards that, well, then I guess we're close to doing that, although our process isn't finished. In all of this, I can't help thinking of the fishing expedition in John 21. The disciples had tried pretty much everything they knew all night without success, experienced fishermen that they were, all the while not realising that 153 fish were waiting for them on the other side of the boat. Well, I hope those reflections are useful. You can see that they spring out of the strategic planning stuff that we're doing at Campus Bible Study at the moment. And as we've been working our way through that process, we have been juggling or holding together these two truths. That on the one hand, we trust in the sovereign power of God to work through the mysterious gospel that we preach, the gospel that is apparently weak and foolish to many people, but is in fact God's power that we trust in the Spirit and that we're aware that the growth is all from Him. So we're constantly thinking about that aspect at the same time as engaging in the activity that you have to engage in as a team, which is to work together, to collaborate, to plan, to prioritise, to work out which particular knobs we're going to twiddle in our ministry over the next 12 months, how we're going to configure things and how we're going to, to deploy our efforts and energies and what we're going to do together. In other words, to strategize, to plan, to set goals, to do all those sorts of things. And we're working hard as a group to hold those things together and do both of them well and faithfully, as I'm sure that many of you do as well each year as you do your planning and more occasionally as you engage in a, a more significant strategic plan for a few years' time. And as we think those things together and keep working on them, I might come back to this issue or to the things that we're learning in the process as we go, because perhaps that's useful for you as well as you approach all of this. Well, thanks again for 
being here this week and for listening. Thanks for being one of uh, the partners of The Painful Truth. This is a partner-only post, so I really appreciate the support, um, not only financial, but the moral support and the uh, encouragement I get from so many of you to keep writing and thinking. So thank you for that. In the broader writer ministry I'm engaged in at the moment, the thing I'm really working on is the Two Ways to Live revision, and in particular, the new training materials coming out of that. Uh, They're well advanced now, and I'll be sharing some more information and some drafts and examples of that with you over the next little while, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, thanks for being here for another edition of The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.